Then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you, are, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. We are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of you, of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself also might be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. May God add his blessing, the reading of his precious word, and the assembling of his children together to fellowship with him in his word. This is why we assemble. Because we call out by God's spirit, we call out to God the Father, Abba, Father. That's Aramaic for dad, daddy. This is saying, this is the intimate father that is not distant. His office door is not always locked. Don't come in here, I'm doing work. He's the dad that you can always go to and we're actually commanded always to go to. We're told, draw near to him as a command with a promise and he will draw near to you. And this relationship that we have with God the Father through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf, making us fellow heirs with Christ, this relationship we have with the Father has eternal consequences, eternal consequences. What happens to you forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? What happens to you? You are part of God's restoration plan of his creation, which was subjected to futility because of the fall. What God is doing historically and eternally in undoing the effects of the fall involves his work through you in his coming kingdom. And that is that, is that to which you advance. This is what we are marching toward. So we have to grow. So we have to shoulder the load God gave us. We have to find that easy yoke and that light burden. We have to be on mission as disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this is all too great for us to love one another as Jesus has loved you, for you to selflessly give yourself, give of self for the benefit of the other, as we're going to be told again and again in Philippians, is impossible for you in your own steam. God is not interested in what you brought to the table with the energy of, as we call it, the energy of the flesh, what you can do by your own self-determination, by your willpower, by you making it happen. 
I know every one of you is very capable and competent and self-important in the way in which you find yourself being capable and competent and self-important in those moments of unguarded self-indulgence. We all have our moments of saying, I got this. But the truth is that we don't got this. God has to do it through us. We have to be used by him. We have to submit to him. We have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he will exalt us at the proper time, casting all our cares on him for he cares for us. And this is fellowship with God. God, you have your way. God, you work your work through me. God, I'm not bringing my sinful power. I'm submitting to your powerful work through me. And that, that is fellowship with God, walking in the light as he is in the light. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. We forfeit fellowship with God through personal sin. Even as believers in Jesus, we disobey God. And that is a functional death we read in Romans 8. But the life that we want to live is a life of cleanness of having been cleansed. So let's take a moment for silent prayer and confess any known sins to God so that we can receive the cleansing that he promises. Let's pray. Our Father, we marvel in your grace, in your righteousness, in your kindness, in your faithfulness, and your care for us. We do not deserve any of these things, but you give them abundantly and freely. Father, you have promised that if we would ask for wisdom, you would give it abundantly without abrading us for asking. You have marvelously magnified your grace to us at every hand, and we could never earn or deserve what you've done on our behalf. Father, it's our privilege to glorify you as your son has taught us to do. It is also our privilege, Father, to ask you for more. Just as the Lord Jesus again taught us, we ask you for more because we know that for you to give us more is for us to be better equipped to serve you more. Father, more is for you. We ask for it for us, but we know that it is really for you, and we ask for it now. Give us more of yourself, more of your insight, more of your wisdom, more of your peace, more of everything that you want us to have, Father. Let us not forfeit any of it through self-determination, through self-glorification, uh, through all the tendencies we have to self, but rather, Father, we humble ourselves before you, looking for your work through us. Everyone here, Father, as you know and we acknowledge, we're broken. Everyone here is in desperate need of constant renovation of our thinking, of the saturation of our hearts with the scriptures. Father, this can never happen unless you bring it forth through us. And so we ask you for it today in Jesus' name. Amen. We find ourselves cruising through Philippians chapter 1. The book of Philippians, Paul's epistle. The apostle Paul's epistle to the Philippians. It is a fun thing because this is a letter to people that are getting it right. We could turn to a letter where they're getting it wrong. That'd be, as we said, first hour, first Corinthians or second Corinthians or Galatians. These are Paul's punitive epistles. Well, this is one of his salutary letters. You're getting it right, people. You're doing well. And that is such an encouragement when someone tells you you're getting it right. As I said, there might be an interesting um, um, insight for you about this letter and all of Paul's letters. 
The reason he writes them is because they're getting it right. He's writing this letter because he's giving them feedback. The Corinthians get negative feedback. You're walking as unbelievers, even though you're believers. The Galatians are getting, they've denied the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith alone and Christ alone. And so they're being corrected for that. But he gives them feedback. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, you are amazing in how God is using you. Where I was only there for a short time and, and the gospel has expanded like wildfire throughout Macedonia. And so you who are advancing, continue the advance, do still more. God never says, oh, that's enough candle power. He says, keep adding some light. He never says that's enough heat. He says, keep throwing some more fuel on the fire. And that's what's going on in Philippians. He got a response he, uh, from the, uh, to his ministry from the Philippians. They have been very consistent in their support of the gospel ministry with the apostle Paul, even while he's imprisoned in Rome in chains. They are supporting the gospel ministry by giving sacrificially as though they are partners with the apostle Paul on the mission field. And I am not here to preach for you to give to Preston City Bible Church sacrificially. Oh no, I am not going to be mediocre in my ambitions. What I want you to do is to think about what it would be like to be a partner side by side, shield lock to shield lock in, in ranks with the Apostle Paul, what it would be like as a privilege eternally to be a Philippian. And then to say, what do I have to do in my life? What adjustments do I need to make to become, if I'm not one, to become a Philippian, to become someone that says, I truly am a side-by-side -side partner in the gospel ministry. And that is, that is not giving to Preston City Bible Church, right? That's not what we mean by that. That means that you might do that, and, and we do as a worship, we, we worship by giving. I'm not telling you not to give. I'm saying that is not a, a sufficient account of what Paul's doing when he says, you who've given to support the ministry are my partners on the mission field. The truth is, the truth is that some people need to go and others need to stay and they need support to go. The truth is that not everybody gets to go. And that is the way the Apostle Paul thinks of the Philippians. They're with him, even though they're not physically with him. And so he's very excited about them. And we read his prayer for them in uh, chapter one. He starts it off by summarizing their participation in the gospel in verses uh, three through seven. And then he talks about what he feels for them in verse eight which would be shocking to you who tend to be a little more stoic and not really interested in all those feelings. He says in verse seven, just as it's right for me to think this way concerning you all, since I have you in my heart, because both in my chains and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, all of you are my fellow partakers, a strong word for partnership in the gospel. Whether I'm in chains for Christ or whether I'm preaching Christ, you're my, you're my battle buddies. You're my partners who are right there alongside with me, help making it happen. And this is because in part, they have continuously supported Paul so that he is a full-time gospel worker instead of a part-time gospel worker. Paul, the tent maker maketh tents no more because of the Philippians. And as I said, first hour, you and I are forever indebted 
to what God did through this church, this group of churches, this city of the Christians in Philippi. You and I are always going to be responsible to God for praise of him because God used Paul and the way he supported Paul was the giving of the Philippians. So what changes would I need to make to become one? My prayer is that you say, no, I'm a Philippian. I get it. I'm on mission and my substance in life is the gospel ministry. And I'm going to advance that in whatever giftedness I have. However, God equips me to do it. I'm going to promote it. I'm going to advance it. I'm going to insist on it. I know of a church. I'll say its name, the National Capital Bible Church in uh, Springfield, Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C. Pastor Dan Ingram. Uh, they have four, they have a church similar in size to ours. They run four good news clubs out of that church. They run four clubs. That means that there are four teams. I assume it has to mean there are four teams or a bunch of retirees that, that are doing this more as a full-time thing, which is volunteer work. You can't feed your family with it. Um, they are going into the schools like we do in our club in Norwich. They're going to the schools to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to children that will trust in Jesus. I know American children are supposed to be sheltered from the gospel and prevented from relating to God according to uh, the way the secularists have tried to steer the state. But the truth is, that's just a lie. The truth is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is speech and we can do it and we do it in the schools. Well, they have four there in, uh, in the cesspool of the, the area of the national capital we are working on a second one and i ask you to pray for the end of these restrictions to this current uh viral thing that's going on we would love to be able to actually do that again and also please be in prayer for the families that are involved with all these children remember um i don't know if you remember but when we were doing the good news club for the last five years or so in norwich the children share their prayer requests with us and they will break your heart if you read them, pray that my mother will get out of prison. Pray that I'll, I'll be able to see my father again at some point. Pray for my cousin who, is, who has been attacked or assaulted. The, the, it's a bleak picture because we live in a bleak world. And the trouble is everywhere. And the gospel is the only answer because it's the only eternal answer. And we have that answer and we, we're sitting on a gold mine. And we're supposed to be throwing gold at the world. We're supposed to be sharing this. Peter says at the beautiful gate, money and gold and silver I don't have to the, to the beggar who's, who's lame from birth and begging at the, at the gate of, of the temple. Please give me some money. Please, please give me alms. Peter says, look at me. Gold and silver I do not have, but what I have I give you. And he grabs his hand. He says, stand up and walk. And the man leaps up and can walk because of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ that he's demonstrating as an apostle. And that same ap apostle who has validated his ministry and God has, has, has testified by this sign, this miraculous ability, this apostle is still telling you in his letters, Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And you have eternal life the second that you trust in him. And that is what is the great need. And so we're sharing this and this culture, this culture is hard to break into. As you know, everybody's too busy. They're working, working, busy, busy, busy. Maybe they're busy doing nothing, but looking at their phone. Maybe they're busy doing nothing, but texting and, and really just doing nothing. 
They're making a lot of actions that actually accomplish nothing. We're all distracted and we're all easily distractible, but maybe we're working hard. Working hard, working hard to do what? To get some time, to get a break, to take a little, little me time. But what are we really doing? What's our life really about? Well, it's supposed to be about the gospel and you want to be a Philippian. What changes do you need to make to your life to be on mission like these saints that are still blessing you all these years later? You're my fellow partakers of grace, for God is my witness how I long for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. Paul personally wants, feels a desire to be with these people that are his close partners in this mission, but he can't because he's, he's in chains. He's stuck in uh, apparently house arrest in his Roman, one of his Roman imprisonments. And so he wants to be with them, but he can't be with them. And so he longs to be with them, those who have supported him so well. This I pray that your love still more and more will abound in spiritual knowledge and all discernment so that you will approve the better things so that you will be sincere and blameless in the day of Christ. Now that little chunk of verses uh, eight and nine, uh, ver- yeah, verse, verses eight and nine, we'll, we'll read, uh, sorry, nine and 10. You'll read that and just kind of blow through it. You'll just kind of read it. And this I pray that your love still more and more will abound in spiritual knowledge and all discernment. Get to the good stuff, Paul. This is spiritual growth. The growth is in love and in spiritual discernment. And the outcome is good decisions. Ever make bad decisions? You know why? It's because you weren't thinking correctly. Probably you weren't thinking at all. And you did something that you felt like. Because there is a super highway between your sinful nature and its lusts and your feelings. Well, I just felt like it. We all have this trouble. We have these urges, these temptations, these lusts. And there is a feeling. There's no other word to describe it. I just feel like it. Well, see, the truth about God's word is, is if you Christians in the power of the spirit will think the word of God, he will give you different feelings. He will backfill you with joy that you didn't know. You will receive peace and the stability and feelings of stability that come from it when you wait on him, when you trust him, when you think his thoughts. And that's the name of the game. That's why God wrote it in a book and you have to read the book and think the thoughts. He could have given you, if God wanted you to focus on him as a matter of just your feelings and you would just feel it and just like kind of accidentally walk into this and not really think it first. If it was a matter of feelings, what am I gonna say? He could have written you a blister pack of pills. And believe me, God's powerful enough to do anything he wants. He made gravity. It's his idea. And it works at every level. God's really awesome. And, and really awesome. He's the only one who is. He can do anything he wants. He could have personally delivered to you the pills that if you took it, take a little water, you could feel what God wanted you to feel. And that would be it. I mean, I can think of that. But the thing is, you're so much more than just how you feel. You're so much more than, than that part of your life. It's, a, it's an important part of life. It's so important. The psychologists call it emotions, like the thing that makes you move, the thing that moves you, the thing that you, makes you get in, in gear. Well, you know, how about the feeling that you get when you realize you have a discrete number of days in this life and they have a purpose and God has told you what their purpose is? 
How about that feeling of urgency that <gasps> I don't want to waste a very a single second of this life because there aren't many of them. We've done the math. It's less than 30,000 days in a long life. And we waste our lives because we don't think about we have a creator who has a call on the day. If you grow in love, you're going to grow in your capacity to think God's thoughts. And so switch from I feel rejected, betrayed, whatever, and start thinking about what Christ has done for you and what he calls you to do. And so the whole person is now responding to God. I feel obligated. If I think about the cross, I feel obligated. You know what I mean? I didn't wake up this morning feeling obligated. I mean, I like to say, it. well, I kind of did. Today I did. I mean, honestly, I did. Well, I'd be like, this is a great day. Because I get to come be with you and beautiful, the sun was out. Thank you, Lord. But I don't always wake up feeling that way. So what? Well, I need to make some adjustments. I need to think. I need to think about the cross and the plan God has for my life and the riches I have because I belong to Jesus and I'm already in the beloved. I'm already exalted above any position I can imagine in position in Christ. I can't imagine what God has done for me. I can't fully grasp it. But the more I think about it, the more that thought is going to produce joy. And the more you are distracted from that thought, the farther you are from the joy God wants you to have. And that's why the Bible. So you think it first and you feel it second. That's the, that's the issue. That's the challenge. And this is what he says. I want your love still more and more to abound in spiritual knowledge and all discernment. Because of the knowledge that you have and the discernment you gain, your love is increasing. Love is always the answer. It's like the acid that dissolves anything. I think that's not a really good illustration, but love is acid. What I mean is, what I mean is you name the problem, the conundrum, the, the challenge, the riddle, the thing you're facing, and it's always with people. I mean, people problem. Think of the worst people problem you have. Little church, I'm your pastor. In most cases, in many cases, I know what they are. Think of the thing. And maybe some of you know the thing that's like the big thing for me or things for me. In every case, beloved, if I switch from feeling hurt or whatever feelings I might have that are bad, that, that, that are legitimate, I mean, Somebody hurts you, you hurt. Slap me, it hurts, right? Switch from that feeling and, and think, start thinking about my relationship with God, the work of Christ on the cross, the destiny he's given me. You know, the three questions, who is God, who am I, and what is God gonna do with me? The three questions, who is God, think it through, who am I, according to what he said, and what is he gonna do with me? If you'll, if you'll figure that out, you have a biblical, a Christian worldview about the situation, and then start asking, okay, what feelings of obligation do I now start to have? Well, if you think about the commands of the Bible, you're supposed to love that person that's a problem. I didn't say you approve of them. I didn't say you like what they do. I didn't say you, you necessarily want to hang out with them. I said, you're supposed to disregard self, look at them, say, what does God want? And start asking God for that and start thinking how you can be part of that. And that is loving someone biblically. 
Loving someone biblically is not, I have great affection toward you. There is that kind of love, but I'm talking about agape love is the love that goes to the cross and dies for your sins and so that you can have eternal life because that's what you need despite your sinfulness and warts and scars and errors and bad attitudes and rage. And when you get angry about the wrong thing and you become righteously indignant about unrighteousness and you grit your teeth and you hate righteousness like the world does, like the world around you does. When that's true of you, God still wanted you and he sent his son to die for you, even though you are fighting for the wrong side. Jesus, that's the gospel. Jesus loved you and he gave himself for you. And when you start thinking this way, the feelings of betrayal or hurt or whatever that basically puts you out of the, out of the work, they, they're not going to stop you from the mission anymore. You're going to be on mission. I've got work to do. I know what I'm for. And this is God's design of the human being and especially the church age believer in this mission. So if you approve the better things, then you will be sincere and blameless in the day of Christ when Jesus comes for you and he then evaluates your work. Having been filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are through Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. This is eschatology. This is eschatology. You can't go anywhere in Paul without thinking about the end state. Where is life taking you? Where is it taking you? Friends, you have habits. All of you have habits that you need to work on. Some of them you need to completely get rid of and some of you need to modify so that they aren't dominating your time in a way that takes you out of the mission. We all struggle with this. We're all in a situation in this life where there are distractions and challenges. And some of you think you're not distracted and challenged and you are, and you need to ask God about that. And I'm not speaking prophetically. I'm just common sense on this. All oh, those, those people that are distracted, they, they've got problems with electronics. Well, you might have a problem that's not electronic, right? So what's my point? Distractions will destroy you. They destroy your effectiveness. They take you out of the work and you won't be a Philippian and you won't have this good and sincere and blameless outcome in the day of Christ because you are not fulfilled with the fruit of righteousness, which are through these fruits, which are fruit through Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. Everywhere you go in the Bible with Paul, he takes you to the end state and says, are you thinking about where your life is going? Are you thinking about what you're doing today with its effects on tomorrow? You are not here for the 2020 election. You are not here to build the kingdom of Christ through any political means. You are not here to build the, the kingdom of Christ through religious means. We're not, we're not building the kingdom. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you and I are building the kingdom. It says when Jesus comes back in Romans eight, he is going to use you to free planet earth and establish his kingdom. That is a much different arrangement. That's a Revelation chapter 19 event. It is a violent event and it is a glorious event. And it is kind of like in the days of Noah. It's, it's going to be awesome. I mean, li literally awesome. I don't mean we buy fireworks so we can kind of get a sense of what it'd be like for something to be awesome. I mean, it's really going to be awesome. And so what are you doing with your life now? will really be affected by how you think about where your life is going. I think so much of life without thinking about, well, today I'm filled with the fruits of righteousness because I'm glorifying God because there's coming the day of Christ where he's going to evaluate me. So much of life, we don't think about the end. 
We don't want to think about death, so we just pretend like I'm just in this moment. I'm not going to think about the future. Hey, if you're learning to live your life one day at a time, that's great. But part of what today needs is for you to think about where it's going, where each day takes you. Each day takes you to the judgment seat of Christ. How does Jesus think at the judgment seat of Christ about today is the question you need to be asking. So I'm living in the moment in light of the end state, in the moment in light of the end state, in the moment in light of the end state. And that's, that's Christian living. And if you don't get hold of there is an end state I'm advancing to and there is an evaluation of today's work, if you don't get in that mindset as Paul is praying that they will have a good outcome, if you don't develop this eschatological, this end times sense of where your life is going, you are liable to the kinds of depression and distraction that plague our people because you're not functioning according to design. You are designed to know where you're headed and that it matters how I live now in terms of where I'm headed. And if you ignore where you're headed, oh, it'll all pan out in the end. If you ignore the day of Christ that's coming for you, if you ignore this judgment seat of Christ's evaluation of your life, that is to your great peril in this moment because you're gonna waste the moment. You're gonna think it's about you. You're gonna think, we'll just do whatever I feel like. Well, whatever gets me through the day, you're just gonna waste this opportunity that you had to glorify God and you're gonna hear about it at the day of Christ. And here's what it sounds like. Where is the fruit that I was supposed to see out of your life? Where is the abide in me and I in you and you'll bear much fruit? I'm not seeing the fruit. Everyone today in theological stuff want to talk about fruit. Do you have fruit in your life? If you don't have fruit, then you may not be a Christian. And they want to turn this Christianity thing into, they want to mix the new birth with the spiritual life and spiritual growth and say it's all one thing. And then I say that if you don't have the production that Jesus calls for, the fruits of righteousness, which are through Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God, if you don't have that, then you're not Christian. You didn't, you're not born again. So if you're not a functioning, maturing adult or growing to, into adulthood spiritually, then you weren't born again. Because the new birth means a guarantee of success. Well, except that there's the, there's the Corinthians, except that they're walking as mere men, except that there's the warning of the sin unto death, except that it's, there's discipline and warning all through the New Testament for Christians that won't walk. No, no, I, I don't think that I'm supposed to inspect your fruit to see if you're really a Christian. Do you smile like everyone in church? Do you have that Christian glazed eyes look? Then we know you're a Christian. No, you don't know anything. You know that they, they, they aren't being taught. See, the fruit inspection is at the judgment seat of Christ. And my mission in life, from what Paul has said through the Lord Jesus Christ, is to set you up as much as it depends on me, as much as I can, to set you up for a well-done outcome at the judgment seat of Christ. For Jesus to say, I saw a harvest. I was able to work through you and this is what you get. Because well, let's, let's just hold the place real quick and talk about this. First Corinthians three. In terms of this mission of the gospel that Paul is building. The Corinthians do not listen to Paul. We've done this recently, but just it's so helpful. I hope you know 1 Corinthians 3. They won't listen to him because they've heard other teachers and they're better speakers. They're flashier, they're more 
they're, they're, they're more refined. And Paul is a content generator. He is sharing, he's teaching them the word of God. You've got people that are preaching eloquently and, and it's all about the arrangement. And so Paul's saying, that, look, the superfood is the superfood. Let's get it. And they want these chefs, but, um, but, and nothing against the people that are, that they're, but they're dividing over who the, who's teaching them. And so Paul says, when one says, verse four, first Corinthians three, four, one says, I'm of Paul and another, I'm of Apollos. Are you not mere men? This man that came behind Paul that was trained in the ministry of Paul and did work in Corinth after Paul. He's a great, I, I shouldn't have started with, he's just an eloquent speaker. He's an excellent speaker. The Corinthians and the Galatians are being deceived by false teachers with good eloquent speech. But what the, what the, in this case, he's talking about the division over himself or Apollos that well, we're the people that want to listen to Paul and we're the people listen to Apollos's tapes. And, and that's a mess. That's, that's just arrogance. Now look what you get. What then is Apollos? Who then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Paul was preaching and you believed in Christ. When Paul preached, Apollos later preached and someone else believed when Apollos preached. The Lord Jesus is doing this work is the point. I planted, I started this church, Apollos watered. He came behind and worked in the same work, but God was causing the growth. You see, we don't do this division and this is a sinful thing that looks like unbelievers in Corinth. He says in verse three, since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? You're not walking like mere men, like unbelievers. First Corinthians three, three. And so he's describing this carnality now. Now he who plants verse eight of first Corinthians three, he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now Paul changes the subject from you people worrying about who's planting and who's watering when it's really God's work. And you need to start thinking about what these planters and waterers themselves are going to receive. They get their own reward for their own work. I said it last hour. Everywhere you go in the Bible, group effectiveness is a function of individual efficiency, of individual success. The group will be successful because the individual is successful. And when we try to do the group to make the individual successful, that's a problem. You with your own spiritual life are going to be evaluated for your performance. So verse nine, for we are God's fellow workers you are God's field, God's building. So me and Paul, Apollos are working alongside God with you as the field, and we are going to be evaluated according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder. Now he changes from farming to building. I laid a foundation. So building on you, the field, and you're built, there's a superstructure that is being, you're being built into. I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each must be careful how he builds on it. Now, to understand what we're gonna hear about the judgment seat of Christ and rewards, you have to understand what he's doing. He's saying, I am responsible to God for my work and Apollos is responsible to God for his work and you are the building we are building, understand. So now let's hear about it, this, this idea, and you can apply it to yourself because you have your work and you have your building to do. So here's how Paul sets it up, he says, According to the grace which was given to me, okay, verse 11, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds on the foundation, if anyone, now apply this to your own ministry work of building in God's work, okay, the fruit that he's talking about. 
If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, verse 13, each man's work will become evident for the day. That's the day of Christ. That's the judgment seat of Christ. That's what he's talking about. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So we just went from farming to construction. Now we're building with gold and silver and precious stones. And now we're in a, a smelter's fire. Now we're, now we're going to blast it with fire to see the, the quality of the products you're building with. The idea, the idea, beloved, is that the building you're building is made of quality materials. What's the material? The foundation which is laid is Christ. You build with what God has supplied. You build with the word of God. You build with the power of the spirit. And so he says, if you use the good equipment, if you build with gold, silver, precious stones, then your work, the product of what you you did with that is going to be tested with fire. So in verse uh, 14, if any man's work, which he's built on it remains, he will receive a reward, a reward. What he's saying is that the superstructure you've constructed in God's working project, he switches all these metaphors, but if your building project that you've worked on was the right materials, you actually receive the thing you built. You get to have it. You get, if you built with gold and silver and precious stones, that passes through the fire and you get to have it. If you built with wood, hay, and straw, if you wasted your life, the fire consumes that. You don't get that. Lord, save us from bad materials. OEM parts. (laughs) If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Sins eyebrows. Goes up in smoke. You're still there. You look like that, you know, Tom and Jerry cartoon after the bomb goes off. Tom's still standing there. He's all, you know, soot covered and you're saved, but so as through fire. Now, what, what, what makes this passage hard to read is he keeps switching the metaphors. But in all of these, he's talking about your work. You're a farmer, you're a builder, and now your building materials are in view. And so, did you do the work that God had for you to do with the materials he gave you? And that is the word of God and the power of God, the Holy Spirit. That's your spiritual production. That's abide in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit for without me, you can do nothing in John 15. So he's talking when he says the day of Christ in Philippians, back to our passage, Philippians 1 and 10, when he says, so that you'll be sincere and blameless in the day of Christ. He's talking about this same event in the day that will prove your work because you've been filled with the fruit of righteousness, the fruits of righteousness, which are through Christ under the glory and praise of God. Christians, don't try to do this on your own. That's wood, hay, and straw. Don't try to do this in your own power. You can't. Husbands, don't try to love your wives without the filling of the spirit. It is the result of being filled by the spirit with the word of Christ. Wives, trying to submit to your husbands, knuckleheads that they are. Trying to submit to your husbands without being the product of the filling of the spirit with the word of Christ. That is a losing proposition. And some of you are like, yeah, sure is. The power, the enablement is through Christ. 
And so it's the fruit that he's bearing in you. It's the work that he's doing through you. And we'll hear about that in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. God is the one working in you both to do, to want and to do what pleases him. All right, so this is Paul's prayer and it's a great place to camp out. Do you know how to pray? I mean, this is, spend time and pray about this. God, I don't know what it, I don't know what they're even talking about. Well, keep reading it. Keep refreshing it. Keep thinking about it. Read it slow. Read it fast. Read it in Spanish. If you speak Spanish, if you can read in Spanish. Read it in Greek. Come spend some time. We'll read it in Greek. But the point is that this is the, the thing life is really about. It's the spiritual life. It's the spiritual productivity. And um, now let me say in comparison to the culture, let me pivot and talk about the world. What Paul is discussing here in 1 Corinthians 3, the unbelieving world has no idea about any of this. It's completely foreign. It's irrelevant. To the world, you will be spinning your wheels, doing a bunch of Jesus stuff. That basically means, I guess, you like feel better when you do it. The best thing is that if, you, know, you found something that makes you happy, okay. They have absolutely no idea about the eternal bank account that God said, store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. The world doesn't know anything about this. And so guess what happens if you become yoked? Second Corinthians 6, 6. If you become yoked with the world, guess what happens? You stop thinking about the eternal consequence of your choices and you start doing what the rest of the world does and thinks. And you get, you get taken off of this spiritual focus of Christ, the things above where Christ is, and you start focusing on the things of this life and just try to please yourself. And you start watching the other people. Oh, they seem to be doing this thing. And you start trying it. And I'm not telling you not to have associations. I'm telling you not to be yoked. 2 Corinthians 6, 6, don't be yoked with unbelievers. You don't have anything to do with that. You don't be yoked with them. You be light to them so that they can have eternal life by your witness. You're in their lives, but you're not one of them. You don't join with them in their darkness because you're the light. So you show up as the light. I want y'all to hang out with me more. I wanna hang out with you more and think about these things together because you know what happens? If I'm constantly saturated with the pursuits of this world, if that's everything that I'm constantly consuming, it's all I'll be thinking about. But if somebody's constantly saying to me, like Jack Hayes will do, talking about whatever over breakfast, conversation is always gonna go back to the Bible. I was reading in James today. It's always, it's always gonna go back to the Bible. That's the spiritual life. And you need to be surrounded and associated with people that are gonna remind you that's part of what this assembly is for. May God let us be this way with one another. That because you talk to me and I talk to you, I'm reminded of the judgment seat of Christ. And I'm thinking about the things above where Christ is at the right hand of the Father. God's enemy does not want you to be so associated and so focused but God wants you to be. In verse 12, we have Paul's account of his suffering and his interpretation of its outcome. It's awesome. Now, Paul is imprisoned. He hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't committed any crimes. He hasn't, he's always in prison and it's never for something that he did wrong. You know, all the, all the inmates in prison, I'm told, are innocent. 
But this is the case where actually Paul has actually, all he's done is preach Christ. He's done what God told him to do. We have the stories in Acts and early Acts of Peter, who is imprisoned for preaching Christ and they told him not to do it. And then he, the angel springs him from prison. Then he goes right back in the temple and preaches Christ. We thought we told you not to do this. Well, I have to obey God and not men is the answer. Nebuchadnezzar says when, the, when, the, when all the noise happens, when all the music plays, everyone bow down to the image. Shadrach and his friends say, no, we, we don't have to do that. Well, I'm gonna throw you into the fiery furnace. Okay, God may deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not gonna bow down to that image because we worship only God. It's the spiritual life. It's the spiritual perspective um, all through the scriptures. And you need to be surrounded by those who will remind you of it. In verses 12 through, through 17, Paul in prison will tell you that it's good news that he's in prison. Hey, let me look at this horrible situation where I've restricted my travel. I wanna be with you. I long for you with the affections of Christ, but I can't be with you because I'm in prison. I have to write these letters that the Preston, City, Preston, Preston citizens will read 2,000 years later. I've got to write these letters because I'm stuck because God wants us to read it. He says, boy, is he right. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out to the greater advance of the gospel. I'm chained. I'm in, he's going to use the word chains all through this. My chains for Christ are advancing the gospel ministry. I would think that Paul, the apostle of the big calves and the worn out sandals, you know, with all the walking he does all over the Mediterranean world, I would think Paul would say, I'm stuck. I can't get out there and get the gospel going. Well, that's maybe what he thought at first. But by the time he writes Philippians, he's like, wow, all I have to do is sit here and write letters <laughs> and talk and tell the guards and tell them about Jesus. And he's been, he's been preaching Christ for years and years and years. It's amazing what he says has happened because he's been imprisoned. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, the things concerning me, have turned out to the greater advance of the gospel. What do I have to do to be like this? What changes do I need to make in my life so that I can say, even when I'm suffering, it's advancing the gospel. You just need to say, God, have your way with my life. I'll do what you want. And then be in the word so that you hear him. And your circumstances will advance the gospel as Paul is modeling here. So that my change have become visible or evident in Christ and the whole praetorian and all the rest. The whole praetorian, this is a Roman imprisonment. And the praetorian guard, as we've said, is the secret service of the, of the Caesars. They began it in a couple years BC. And by the time Paul is writing, there are nine uh, cohorts is the, the, the word for the divisions, nine cohorts of 500 men. So the whole praetorian, at least that's where Paul is, and they all know each other. So the word's getting out. Paul is having a huge impact on Rome through the military because everybody in the praetorian guard knows about me. I'm under this house arrest. I'm part of, that's part of their, apparently their purview as a prisoner of Caesar. And so my chains have become visible as a way of saying everybody knows it. In Christ, in the whole praetorian and all the rest, everyone in town. I told you, Paul is like, he's like a, 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 a nuclear reactor with no shielding. It's just, just radiating out wherever he is. The gospel just radiates out from where he is. And that's happening at Preston City Bible Church too. Another, you know, 
negative example, I guess, we'll think of ourselves as that pebble dropped into the pond, makes the ripples come out from the concentric circle. This is what happens when you stand for the Lord. Now, you might do it in chains. I want to say something about your experience. I've been talking about this a lot in the uh, study on uh, Christian stability and historical uncertainty. Your circumstances are not revelation from God about God or or you. They're not. They are what they are. God's word is revelation about him. His word about you is revelation about you. His word about what he's going to do with you, that's revelation about your future. Your um, bad outcome with whatever you're struggling with is not revelation that God doesn't love you. It's not a a life lesson that's teaching you that, um, that bad things happen to good people and I just can't get ahead. It's none of these things. And we do that with this because we're bitter and sinful. Your life situations, your hardships in life are challenges for you to trust God and to trust him on the basis of what he's actually revealed to you, what he's told you. That's the answer to this problem of our circumstances. Well, Paul shows you here one way you could see and ask the question, how is God using my situation to advance the gospel? Or how can he, since he told me to be about his business? My chains have become visible in Christ and the whole praetorian and all the rest. And the majority of the brothers in the Lord, having been convinced by my chains, so much the more dare to speak the word without fear. Okay, so Paul is, he's, you know, he's stuck. It's a big game of freeze tag and Paul's frozen. Everyone else is now more emboldened to get out there and get to work. That's an amazing effect. The leader is imprisoned for the gospel's sake and everyone can look to him and say, where's his attitude? He's serving the Lord. He's praising God. He's writing prison letters. Have you read the thing he wrote to Asia Minor? We have it as the letter to the Ephesians. Do you know the riches that we have in Jesus Christ? Or as we like to say, chapters one through three of Ephesians are the privileges of the church, the body of Christ. And chapters four through six of Ephesians are the practices of the body of Christ. Remember the outline for Ephesians? Have you read what he wrote? It's amazing. And those brothers that are hearing of Paul's ministry despite his chains are seeing the differential, bad circumstances with awesome glory and joy. And so they're emboldened because of Paul's imprisonment and they're so much the more they dare to speak the word without fear. I like the word, the majority. My Bible might translate most of the brethren, verse 14. Most of the brethren. This means the word, the Greek word is saying most. Like out of 50 people, it's not 15. Sometimes we talk about the, the, the way a church is. You've got 20% of the people that do 80% of the work. You've got the inner core of the people that actually are doing the work. And then you've got the, you know, the 80% that are kind of out there in the middle of the record, just kind of you know, going along. And if, that's not how Preston City Bible Church is, of course. <laughs> but but that's, that's the common thing is that you get 20% of the people doing the actual ministry. And then 80% of the people are just kind of recipients or riders along or something. Well, with Paul in chains, these people are emboldened and you have like an inverse. The majority of the people are preaching Christ. What are they going to do to us? Put us in prison? Look at Paul. He can do it. We can do it. 
Some, on the one hand, are preaching Christ indeed because of envy and strife. Who? Some of what? Some of whom? Well, I read this in, in context. The majority of the brothers, that'd be Christians that are born again in the same family called God Father, brothers. In verse 15, some of these brothers, on the one hand, are preaching Christ because of envy and strife. But on the other hand, some also are preaching Christ because of goodwill. Now, if you're looking at King James or New King James, it's going to put um, verse 16 and 17. It's going to flip the order. Don't be distracted. Or 17 and 18 is going to flip the order. Verses 16 and 17 to flip the order. Don't worry about that. There's a manuscript thing. We haven't lost any of the text. It's just a difference of which one of these is which. I'll show you the interchange. So you've got two categories of the brothers that are preaching Christ. Some, one category is preaching Christ because of envy and strife. They're sinful toward Paul. There's a problem they've got with Paul. And so they're preaching Christ out of that motivation. And that, wow, that's weird. That's ugly. Could Christians preach Christ out of sinfulness? I just got out of the text they can. They did. The first generation of Christians. Well, certainly not doing that now. On the other hand, some are preaching Christ because of eudokia, goodwill. Now, these latter are proclaiming Christ out of love. This is the, the if you got a New American Standard or um, uh, ESV, they put it in this order. These latter are proclaim, proclaiming Christ out of love, knowing that unto the defense of the gospel, I am appointed. Now, notice Paul is exercising apostleship here. He's saying, I am the apostle, and they're doing it as adjuncts in some way to my ministry. He planted, and now he's in chains, and they're, motivated to serve but the latter are proclaiming christ the ones out of goodwill out of love and it's love in part for paul it's love that god is building through them it's their spiritual lives because they know that unto the defense of the gospel i'm appointed but the former these people that have abandoned paul they're christians but they're babies and they're acting like unbelievers in their hearts as they preach christ it's weird but it's true the former from selfish ambition are proclaiming Christ, not sincerely because they intend to increase tribulation in my chains. Their goal in preaching Christ is to get more attention on Paul and cause him to suffer more. Now, I am not going to try to imagine the scenario that he's describing. But I will say this. You've got all kinds of ministry associates in all ministry. There are all kinds of people that are in and out of the ministry and their associates and you know them and you work with them. And in Paul's case, you give them special revelation from God and you, and you bless them and train them and do all you can. And sometimes they bite you and sometimes they hurt you and sometimes they betray you. And Paul has lots to say in his letters about ministry associates that he's trained up or worked on that do this. Man, is Christianity really going to be like that? Yeah, of course it is. It's made of people. They're sinners. All of us. And they're petty. And they think the thing that they're focused on must be all there is because we have a little narcissistic egomaniac in all of us. So yeah, I mean, these Christians that he's talking about, I have no doubt from the context they're Christians. I have no doubt that they're doing the face palm for eternity, that that's in Philippians is us. I'm sure they were disciplined. Part of that would be what's written here by God who spanks his children that he loves in Hebrews chapter 12. But they're preaching from the false motivation of selfish ambition. Did you know this is a big problem in the ministry? 
Paul says you don't lay hands on someone early, neophyte, newly planted. He says this in Titus, you don't lay hands on an elder before the time that he's mature because he's going to fall into the, um, the, the, the temptation of the devil, meaning he's going to be arrogant. He's going to promote himself. He's going to be uh, self-important because that's the tendency of the human race. That's why these people are preaching. Not sincerely, but they intend to in, increase tribulation to Paul's chains. What do you do with this? What then? As we close, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. How can he say he rejoices in people that are intentionally doing what they do to cause him more harm. Because that's what he says. They're preaching Christ to increase my tribulation and chains. How can he rejoice that that is happening? Two words. Paul's on mission. He knows what he's here for. He's not here for him to be vindicated. He's here to proclaim Christ. He knows what his job is. And so they're doing it from false motivation, but they're doing it. So he can rejoice. He's not happy that they're sinful. He's not happy that they hate him. He's not happy that they're forfeiting their eternal rewards by what they're doing in the wrong motivation. He's happy because the mission is advancing. Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice. Paul is an optimist because he has Christ and because he knows the end. He knows what's coming. You need to be an optimist too. He is able to look at that situation and say, well, I mean, they are preaching Christ. It's the thing that you and I wouldn't do. You know, you know that picnic where there's a beautiful meadow and then there's this one place the dog has visited. You see this beautiful meadow and this perfect setting for a beautiful picnic like on a day like today. And right there in the middle or off to the side is, is where the dog has visited. And what, is our, what do we do? We, our eyes go right to that. And that's all we can think about. That, could you believe what happened to the meadow? You don't think it's a pretty, pretty day, the, the perfect weather. You're not thinking about what you're supposed to think. You're, you're worried about the, the thing, right? Well, it, it, wisely, we'll have, go clean that up and then a pretty meadow, right? But, but you, you, your eye comes to this one thing that's bad about the whole scenario, which is perfect otherwise. Well, Paul's talking about a situation where these people are opposing him by preaching the gospel. He's looking at a field of where the dog has been and it's covered there and there's one nice place. There's one spot that isn't soiled. And he says, look at that. That's optimism. That's where you find the thing that God can use and you glorify God for that. He's not happy these people are opposed to him. He's not happy, again, that they're losing their rewards. He's not happy that they're disobedient to God, that they don't know what love is. They're not doing what they do in the power of the spirit. These are all sad things. But what he is rejoicing in is the one effect. They're preaching Christ. And this is something you and I need to be looking for. I've told you there are three questions that'll solve all your problems. Who is God? That's what the word of God says he is. Who am I according to what God said? And what is God going to do with me? 
These are three key questions that'll give you a Christian worldview about you and your situation. It really helps zoom out. And I need those quick, I need quick answers for, for, for tough questions when I'm really hurting. There's another piece to this that summarizes the whole New Testament. And it is, what does God want in terms of the mission? That's the fourth question. What does God want in terms of the mission? Which gets me from who I am and who God is to where God wants me to be, where God's going to take me. That's the rationale that Paul brings to bear in verse 18. Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice. What does God want in terms of the mission of sharing Christ? When I say the mission, to make disciples of all the nations. For me, he'll say in verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. A summary life verse for everyone who like Paul is going to be on mission. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. In, in years past, uh, it was popular and in some places still is for people to walk aisles, raise hands, make professions of faith publicly when they trust in Christ as their savior. And we certainly wanna hear if you have become a Christian recently. But much more important than you feeling like you've done something is understanding what Jesus did for you. We don't walk aisles, raise hands. We don't make a big um, um, demonstration about this because we want, the, we want the issue to be very clear. Some people think they're saved because they walked an aisle. Some people are saved because they raised a hand. What saves you is the blood of Jesus Christ. And what you do with that is trust in him. And that is the gospel of Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. We bow our heads and close our eyes because this is a moment of intimacy between you and your creator. For you to go to God and say, I want to know you. Help me understand these words. Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. Help me understand what my savior has accomplished for me. God, I'm trusting in your son as my savior. I quoted it earlier, I'll say it again. Apostle John gave the signs, the great demonstrations of power in John, and he wrote them down so that we would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Our Father, we praise you for this eternal life, for the joy we have of thinking your thoughts and going from what the world does with life, and it's just getting through things, to what life is really about and sharing who and what you are and rejoicing and, um, and recruiting for those who will come and reign with your son and his coming kingdom. Father, let us be successful on mission as we continue to pay attention carefully to what you said. Father, always in the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.